in this episode of the Live Damn Well podcast. In that quest, I stumbled on the animal brain and the chemicals that make us happy and the fact that they're the same in animals and that in animals they motivate behaviors that um, are so easy to see and feel in our daily lives and yet nobody says this with their conscious brain and we even deny it with our conscious brain and yet there was all these nature videos <laughs> that just showed it like it was just a simple matter of fact. Dopamine gives you a good feeling and that motivates you to step toward it and each step toward it triggers more dopamine. But once you get it, the dopamine stops. And so that's why our brain evolved to always be seeking. Or you understand your brain and you say, I need a goal because stepping toward a goal will make me feel good by stimulating my dopamine. My name is Jorge Roman, author of Return to Human, certified health coach in training, metabolically flexible individual, and insulin-sensitive human. In this podcast, I will relentlessly ask, why is there so much conflicting information about health, nutrition, and lifestyle recommendations? Is there more to the story? Or are those individuals involved with natural and alternative health simply a bunch of pseudoscientific quacks? I will often have solo episodes discussing relevant scientific research around nutrition, supplementation, and powerful lifestyle practices. I'll also occasionally plug my health coaching programs shamelessly. I'll also be interviewing thought leaders from all walks of life in an attempt to discover what truly makes someone sick or healthy. Now I will do this all with no agendas, no ideology, no BS, just the truth. Regardless of the fact that one, it'll be very difficult to do, and two, I will inevitably trigger and anger some narrow-minded and myopic individuals. Now to live damn well doesn't simply mean living life perfectly. We're all going to die someday, so striving for that ultimate health is a pretty counterproductive goal. Rather, I hope to learn from myself and empower others to fulfill their purpose and enjoy life to the fullest, all while being disease-free, energetic, and in total control of their biology. I believe humanity already has all of the tools to create a life which is disease-free, joyful, and highly fulfilling. Now we need to do the hardest part, cutting through the divisive, arrogant, close-minded BS which holds us all back from creating the world we deeply desire. Thank you for joining me on this journey, and I hope to serve you on yours. Welcome to the Live Damn Well podcast. My name is Jorge Roman, and my guest today is Dr. Loretta Broning. Is that how you pronounce that? Founder of the Inner Mammal Institute, author of Habits of a Happy Brain, and Professor Emerita of Management at California State University. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So the first thing I really want to cover is, uh, you know, a little bit about your educational background. What really drove you to study human behavior and motivation? Hmm. Well, what drives me, like everyone else, is early experience because that's how we're wired to understand what matters and what is motivating. And we don't do this with our conscious brain. Um, so when we're young, that's when our brain gets wired up. There's nothing tragic about it, no need to think of it from a traumatic perspective, but animals learn how to find food because 
they're hungry and when they find something, they feel better. So we wire ourselves to say, this feels good, that feels bad. So like many people, I was around a lot of unhappiness and I told myself, no way am I gonna do that again, you know? And then when we get older, we get to test our theories and we get education, but then it turns out that our theories don't necessarily work. So um, I, I studied a lot of different subjects when I was young. I sort of went through a lot of different social sciences. And then when I had students and children of my own, these theories I learned did not work. So that's what motivated me to keep looking. And then in that quest, I stumbled on the animal brain and the chemicals that make us happy and the fact that they're the same in animals and that in animals they motivate behaviors that um, are so easy to see and feel in our daily lives and yet nobody says this with their conscious brain and we even deny it with our conscious brain and yet there was all these nature videos <laughs> that just showed it like it was just a simple matter of fact so that's what got me into this yeah so it, it seems like that's a common theme, right? That we have these ideas in our childhood, in our adolescent years. And actually right now for me, still in those really late adolescent years. And so I'm thinking, you know, I'm learning so much from my own research um, where I wrote my book and I'm thinking, okay, like this sounds great. There are so many researchers that are saying these things and they all seem to line up, but like, is it really practical? Will it actually work? And so that's kind of, I totally understand where you're coming from with that. So, one of the main uh, you know, aspects of humanity, one of the main traits that we have that you know, you're very focused on is this idea of motivation. And that's something that, you know, unless you've been living under a rock, that's something that's kind of been low for a lot of people this, this year, simply because of all the craziness that's been going on. So you know, motivation is, is a super interesting field of study. I mean, it's why do we do certain things and why do we not do certain things where like some people nowadays that I know, maybe some friends that I have have opted for Netflix binging and snacking. Whereas, you know, some other people have taken this opportunity to find internships and honestly work as hard as they ever have. And that's what I've seen in some of my friends. And, you know, the reason that I bring that up is I looked through your website, educational resources and videos, and I learned that we have mainly, you know, these four chemicals. And, you know, as a neuroscience student, I knew about them, but I haven't really seen them grouped or talked about like you did. So, uh, let's start with dopamine. Can you briefly cover what it is and you know how it's relevant to motivation? Sure. Uh, first, I should mention um, nothing that I'm saying is the way it's presented in standard neuroscience. Uh, and so I don't call it neuroscience at all, partly because my credential is not in that and partly because they deny it. So I just call it old fashioned biology. <laughs> um, and the other thing is, thank you so much for the way you explain that because so many people act as if, if everybody else is unmotivated, then it's society's fault that we're motivated. And uh, you didn't say it that way. So thank you, that was fabulous. And I too have spent this year just focusing on my own goals and enjoying what I get to do. And everyone can do that when you understand your brain. So right. dopamine is that core motivator that tells you you are about to meet a need. So in the animal world, 
you wake up hungry in the morning, you don't have a refrigerator, you have to find food. And when you look around and see food, dopamine gives you a good feeling and that motivates you to step toward it. And each step toward it triggers more dopamine. But once you get it, the dopamine stops. And so that's why our brain evolved to always be seeking. And um, to put it in your context of the pandemic, either you're motivated and seeking by hunger or you're motivated and seeking by others, or you understand your brain and you say, I need a goal because stepping toward a goal will make me feel good by stimulating my dopamine. So it's the last one that obviously gives me faith and happiness in daily life. You know, it seems like most of the time when we hear about dopamine, especially how it was presented to me the first time I heard it in, in a high school yep. class, we hear about it in such a negative light. And yes. actually in a very exactly. negative light with like all of these four, I mean, from exactly. drug addiction, pornography, food addiction. But, you know, one thing I really wanted to ask you is how can we seek this novelty neurotransmitter in a productive way? Yes. And thank you so much for saying that, because this negative thing, I call it the disease model. So the disease model of mental health takes for granted that happiness should be effortless and in the state of nature that you could just sit on the couch and do nothing and be happy, which is so totally not the way our brain evolved that you can learn from any textbook in evolutionary biology. So our brain evolved to reward us with happy chemicals when we take action to meet our survival needs. So um, did, I'm sorry, the question was what, what we can do in practical life to- Right, like yeah. how can we you know, use that system in a productive yeah. way? Yeah. yeah. So um, first I'll explain like the bad side that you referred to. Novelty is part of our seeking mechanism because if you think about like a caveman when they had enough food, they needed to look for vegetables. When they had enough you know, fruit tree, when they had enough fruit trees, they need to look for protein. So our brain is designed to focus on the unmet need. And when our needs are so met already in the modern world, then novelty is more enticing because just the raw need is not felt. So, we can go on endlessly about bad habits, but let's focus on the positive. So a simple way that I explain this is to say that you can set yourself three goals, a short run goal, a long run goal, and a middle term goal, because every step toward a goal triggers dopamine. And since you can't always have progress all the time, if you shift between different goals, then you can, um, always be moving forward and enjoying dopamine. And if you always have a short-term goal that you can reach before lunchtime, then you can always give yourself some dopamine by making your goals realistic rather than just dreaming about, I think in the education, like you said, they give you negative about dopamine, but then on the positive side, they make it unrealistic. They make these gigantic goals that from a kid's brain becomes being famous, being big. And in evolutionary psychology, it's easy to see why, because in the animal world, some individuals get a lot of mating opportunity and that triggers your chemicals and that wires you to say, hey, this is the way to go. 
So, yeah, I, I mean, I really resonate with a lot of the points that you had because we tend to think about things, you know, now, and it's easy to do that because, you know, we're living in the now we're living in this modern, you know, postmodern era where we have so many things and we've drastically changed our lifestyle in the past 200 years. And that's a piece, uh, a little piece of my book that I, that I wrote. And, you know, it's, it's things like, like these dopamine systems that we're talking about that, you know, we don't really know what to do with them now because, you know, earlier they served us. And that's something that we're going to get into a little later, but, you know, they served us for survival, but now we have, we have everything at our disposal, you know, even the people who may be out of a job or things like that, they still have a certain safety net even then, you know, so it's difficult to translate all of that survival stuff over into practical modern world. Mm. But that doesn't mean we don't need dopamine. We still need it because the, the definition of adulthood is that you meet your own survival needs and it still requires action steps. And dopamine is our tool that makes us feel good while we're taking the action steps. So if hunger motivates an immediate action to look for a pond of fish, but in the modern world, the action is more abstract, but you still have to take it. You still have to basically apply for jobs and use dopamine to break it down into small chunks so you can feel good about each step toward building that career that will meet your needs. Absolutely. That's something that I noticed when I started uh, this podcast, actually. I mean, I had this big goal of right now I'm, I'm uh, training to be a certified health coach. And I had this goal of like, okay, I want to have you know this amount of clients. I want to help this many people. I want to do all these things. And those were all really long-term goals, you know? And if I just had that in my mind, that that was the big dopamine spike, I don't think I would have kept going because the way that I set it out for myself is I created little checklists, little small things that I'll do every day. And every time I hit one of those, you know, that's a little, little dopamine hit that keeps me tied to that process. Yes, exactly. And I have to say that um, when you started on this path and you got help from people, they're all trained in this same model, um, the, uh, in the marketing world, uh, and every few years, there's a new model in the marketing world, and then everybody tells you the same thing. So I got started, I ignored all of that marketing advice. So you can give yourself permission to ignore it. I mean, one simple example, they tell you to quantify your goals and quantify, I mean, to focus on like your ideal customer. So, you know, we can talk about that, but the bottom line is, if you follow this cookie cutter advice, you're just gonna do what everyone else does. Yeah, totally agree. So the next uh, chemical is oxytocin. Now, oxytocin, you know, just to, from my understanding, it's kind of this, this uh, you know, this neurotransmitter that allows us to form social bonds with people. And that was super important for us. But, you know, again, it's, can often be portrayed in negative lights as well, you know, like with all of these. So, um, you know, the one idea that I was super interested in after looking at a lot of your, your educational resources was um, building trust one-on-one -on -one with someone actually makes you less dependent on the herd. So can you talk a little bit more about that one? Thank you. That's, yeah, that's my new project, the biology of belonging. Thank you for getting it. Um, so um, all of these have a downside, but they also have like an upside that can be unrealistic. 
So the way we mostly hear about oxytocin in the media is hugging. You know, that if you just go around hugging people, that will do it. But what I always explain is that um, trust is what triggers it. Um, and hugging without trust, eh, you know, doesn't really meet your survival needs because in the animal world, you know, when the hug is over or like if you're in a stadium cheering with people, which is of course not available today, but when you leave the stadium, you can't count on those people to help you out. So what your brain is really looking for is social support. And that is frankly, a selfish thing. It's like, I want social support to meet my survival needs. And therefore I will offer social support to others, to help them meet their needs in order to get it for myself. So that's how the mammal brain works. And people who make it romanticized and idealistic, like I only care about others, I don't care about myself. It, it, it you know, <laughs> in the interest of time, let's just focus on, so what's a realistic way to get it is, um, again, um, uh, it's reciprocity and it's small steps. So if I take a small step, like I offer trust to someone else, like I trust you in a small step and I prove to you that I am trustworthy in a small step, and then we repeat it, then we build an oxytocin pathway so that I have positive expectations about this other person and they have positive expectations about me. Oh, you, oh so yeah, that's right. You asked about the herd versus individual one-to-one -one bonds. So herd animals have smaller brains than primates. So if I'm a gazelle, I am attached to my mother at birth. And then in adolescence, I transfer my attachment from my mother to the herd. And then I follow wherever the herd goes in order to survive. And if I don't follow them, I'm gonna get eaten by a predator. So you probably have some friends who think this way, right? <laughs> so they're always gonna follow the herd or else they feel like if they don't follow the herd, they're gonna get eaten by a predator. Yes. But primates, which means monkeys, apes, and humans, primates have bigger brains than herd animals. And we are capable of individual one-on-one -on -one reciprocal mutual support kind of bonds. And we're also capable of building new ones and then deleting them <laughs> when the other person turns out to not be reliable. So that's what we're motivated to do. And when you have one-to-one -one bonds, then you can get some oxytocin that way. And that's really the modern way because for much of human history, you were with your tribe every minute of your life. You never got to make any decisions on your own. You never got to choose your own romantic partners. And that's the way it was until the modern world where we have a choice. And if you wanna to choose to follow the herd every minute, that's your choice, but then you're stuck with you have to go wherever the herd goes because you haven't built other ways of meeting your oxytocin needs. Now, I'm sure you've probably heard of, you know, the problems with social media, especially for the brain. And, you know, one of them is that we would have never in, you know, 100 years ago have been exposed to the likes or the comments of so many people at once, you know, and that can probably be, you know, really overwhelming. So is that, you know, is this oxytocin system part of the reason why a lot of people, um, you know, neuroscientists or psychologists actually recommend, you know, have a close, small circle of people? 
Um, so yes, and also real life people rather than virtual people. Right, right. So um, I totally agree with the way you said it. But what most people say is they blame social media for whatever are their um, emotional um, dips and they blame social media for their lack of one-to-one -one bonds. So I wanna give you um, just a way to put it in historical context. Every generation has new technologies that bring new challenges, but they have the same old brain. So um, 200, 150 years ago, so there was the invention of the record player and the bicycle. And before that, like you were stuck home playing the piano and singing with your grandmother. And that was your only entertainment. So once you got a bicycle and your friends had a record player, you could go to their house and make an unlimited variety of music with the people of your choice, rather than being stuck home with your grandmother singing the piano songs that she learned when she was a child. So people said, oh my God, society is gonna fall apart. Everything's gonna be terrible because young people will blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes, so. absolutely. So I, I completely agree with you actually. That's, you know, I'm a huge proponent of taking ownership um, because it's really easy to just say, you know, that's out of my control. It's that social media doing that to me in my brain. It's like, no, actually that social media was made that way because of studying the brain, you know, and that's how they, um, that's how it was made. It's really designed to be kind of addictive, but it's based off of the way that your brain works. Yeah. But I also, I, I don't agree with this whole blaming the company for making it addictive. That's one of the messages people are giving but it leads to this pattern of always blaming the company for my behavior, which disempowers you. And the simple example is um, my kids' generation, um, there was that movie, Super Size Me. So they learned to blame their food choices on the company designing the food to be addictive, okay? But the point is, all of these things exist because something is made easier for you and you're choosing to get it the easy way. And when you get something the easy way, like a drug, a drug is giving your brain the chemical without effort, but it wasn't designed to be able to just suck it in effortlessly. And I think a great example of that that I love is um, they have these videos of monkeys drinking alcohol because um, people go to a resort in a tropical country and they sit there with their Mai Tai with a little umbrella and a monkey comes along and drinks it. And they use this as an excuse to say that alcoholism must be natural because monkeys like it. But in the state of nature, that Mai Tai didn't exist. So um, it, uh, in the state of nature, you have to work hard to get that amount of sugar um, and so you, you, um, you do the work to get the reward and that's the healthy way to feel good. Yeah, I completely agree. So now serotonin is the third one that I want to talk about. Yeah. So can you explain that one a little bit? So serotonin is the complicated sticky one in the modern world. So in the animal world, 
there was a whole century of research on the competitiveness of mammals that leads to social hierarchies in animal groups. And this sounds very upsetting to people today, especially when they've been indoctrinated that animals are all loving and empathetic and supportive. But in fact, animals compete tremendously for food and mating opportunity. And we evolved a brain that rewards you with serotonin when you get a little bit of advantage. And it's easy to see that humans are always looking for that little bit of advantage. Like just a simple, simple example is like, I'm playing poker with you and I get a good card and I'm like so excited because I think I'm gonna win. So it's these little moments of, I wanna win, here's a little bit of boost for my quest to win. That's how our brain works. And that's the feeling that we're always seeking. And the minute you get that little boost of serotonin, it's gone a few minutes later and you look for more and that's how it works. And again, this is another one of the ones that, you know, getting a promotion, social dominance, people that sounds really narcissistic and nasty, right? So it's, to me, the way that I like to think about it and the way that I like to use it in a way that's, you know, productive and not narcissistic is, you know, for example, if you're on a team or something, you, you really, your success will be determined by the success of, of, you know, people on that team. So, and that's really, you can see that anywhere, really, if you work in any company, you're always going to be working with people. Today, I want to interrupt this show to talk about magnesium, but not just any old magnesium. This is a special formulation called magnesium breakthrough by the bio optimizers. Now, I have personally tested pretty much every single form of magnesium that exists in search of that perfect formulation from magnesium glycinate to oxide to taurate to magnesium L3 and 8 and citrate. So I know which ones have worked and which ones have been virtually nothing more than an expensive laxative to say the least. So I can say without a doubt that the magnesium that this company actually has is, as the name suggests, a breakthrough for magnesium. So I'm going to tell you why this mineral is so important for our bodies. First of all, it's anti-anxiolytic. Now, this virtually means that some research shows it helps promote calm in the face of mental and emotional stress. Now, there's an inverse relationship between the amount of stress you have and the amount of magnesium you actually have in your body. In other words, the higher the stress, the less magnesium is found in the body. Now, it's also very beneficial for metabolic health and has been shown to improve health biomarkers such as insulin, blood sugar, and even high blood pressure. Now, it's also pretty much depleted from soils in comparison to previous generations because of modern agricultural methods such as overtilling the soils and pesticide use. So we don't actually get that much in foods anymore compared to the previous generations. Finally, this supplement includes naturally derived forms of all seven forms of supplemental magnesium. Now, why is that important? Because some forms of magnesium actually get absorbed and utilized better in specific parts of the body. With Magnesium Breakthrough, you actually get all seven forms in one supplement, which is super helpful. Since you are a loyal listener of the podcast, BioOptimizers is actually offering an awesome post-New Year's sale. You'll get 10% off using my link and one free bottle of their powerful digestive enzyme supplement and a copy of their book, The Biological Optimization Blueprint, when you buy just one bottle of Magnesium Breakthrough. 
The link is in the description. Now back to the show. Exactly, exactly. So there's a totally healthy and effective way to use it. And you have the power to use it that way, but you also have the power to blame other people for your lack of winning cards and then to not take the action to build trust with others so that you can win together. Now, endorphins. Endorphins is the last one. It's like the natural painkiller, right? Yes, exactly. Endorphin is our brain's natural opioid. It's the same chemical as heroin or morphine or, or codeine effectively. Um, but the, the complicated thing, like they all have a downside. So it's only stimulated by real physical pain and it's only meant for emergencies. We're not meant to seek it, even though we are meant to seek the others. But it would be really stupid to inflict pain on yourself to get endorphin. And yet, uh, because it feels good. So why does it feel good? Because it masks pain with a good feeling for 15 minutes, which helped our ancestors survive when they were injured. So if an animal or a caveman was injured, they had a small window of opportunity to take action to promote their survival. And then they would feel uh, then they would start feeling the pain because that tells you to protect your injury. So in the modern world, we are not meant to inflict pain on ourselves to get endorphin. There's so many other ways to feel good. So I'm always very careful to explain that, that I'm not advocating a quest for endorphin. However, I explained that laughter stimulates a little bit. And so that is the healthy way to get it. And a few other healthy ways, by the way, are, you know, exercise, for example, and even sunlight has releases beta endorphins. So, you know, there are ways, like you said, there are definitely healthy ways to, to use all of these and we need them. And frankly, they're not going to go away unless we have some crazy genetic mutation in the next few years. Right. So it's, it's a way of not blaming. It's a way of, you know, using this knowledge that we have and actually making it productive again. Yeah. So, I, so one of the things that came up when I started to learn about your work is can one, you know, and I'm sure the answer is going to be yes, but it's a little bit more complicated than that. Can one lean a little bit too much on one of these and kind of, you know, yeah, like lean too much of them, even have like kind of more of an addiction towards one of them and then not get enough of the other ones and have kind of like a disbalance. Uh, yes, but I definitely don't explain this with like the disease model. Um, in the modern world, so many people are trained to see it from a disease perspective, like as if something is wrong with me and I have this, I'm this or that type. So what I explain in all of my books is that all of these pathways are built from early experience. We rely on our biggest pathways but we have the power to build new pathways. And so we're always making a choice. And what we need to know is why is it easy to use an old pathway and why is it hard to use a new pathway? And there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with the world, but it's literally that electricity flows effortlessly down an old pathway and is actually hard to push electricity down a new pathway. And the simple way to understand that is to think about the difference between speaking your native language versus speaking a language that you learn later in life. 
when you speak your native language, that pathway is so strong that you don't even realize you built it. And you don't even realize that you're looking for a word. Whereas when you learn a language, especially after puberty is over, when our myelin is lower, you struggle to find a word and you have to repeat something a lot in order to build a new pathway. And that's exactly what we can do with our emotions is we can build new pathways, but it takes a lot of repetition and it takes a lot of concentration to activate that new pathway instead of flowing down the old one so effortlessly that you don't even know you're doing it. You don't okay. know you're choosing it really. Okay, that makes sense. So, you know, instead of saying leaning too much, it's more like, you know, you've built up these strong neural pathways where, you know, it's easy to do them again and feel that way again, right? Okay, perfect, perfect. So basically to summarize, you know, in nature, these chemicals were essential to our survival, right? And these feel-good chemicals would always prolong the, our survival. But, you know, in the modern world, that's a completely different story. And, you know, now that we have a sugar and vegetable oil ridden cake that costs less than fresh produce, that's like really a real problem because, you know, our brain is telling us, you know, this is good for you. And it was maybe in the past because it, it signaled, you know, something really sweet is like, oh, this is very energy dense. This is good for me. But, you know, it really isn't. So, you know, some practical tips for that you know, how, how could we work with these systems, you know, just like an overall, you know, summary, how can we actually work with the system, which tends to kind of lead us astray in the modern world? Sure. Um, let me give you what maybe a larger example that explains the different chemicals. So obviously the first step is not to blame your food choices on others. <laughs> so um, it's a, it's a pathway that you built and how can you build a new pathway? So first, um, I start with building on the pathways you already have. So if there's a healthy food that you love, that's a good way to start. So um, one person loves one healthy food and another person loves another. So it's just a, a way to make the start more easily, but we all need a variety of foods, of course. So let me just use hypothetical example. A person loves salad and maybe they experiment with making different salads. So then they make experiment with making different salad dressings. So the dopamine aspect of that is like the search, the quest. So each step that you take toward discovering a new salad dressing, discovering new ingredients. So taking all that steps, you enjoy it. And then that builds a pathway that you expect to get a good feeling by making the salad. And it's such a, a nice modern phenomenon that so many people are watching food shows where they're learning to get pleasure and excitement out of making healthy food. And then, and then sharing the food with others is the oxytocin aspect. And then taking pride in what you made, which is the serotonin aspect. And I had a person just telling me, she said, I don't know why I watch these shows, I'm never gonna make it. Um, and not the healthy, this was actually the unhealthy food that you can actually enjoy watching someone else bake a cake without, you don't have to gorge yourself on healthy cake. And um, what I always explain, you can make a healthier cake than you can buy in the store and you can make a healthy cake and freeze all of it except for one portion. And you can have one small portion of healthy cake a day. And you can still take pleasure in the system that you have 
instead of feeling powerless with old pathways. You know, it seems like a big theme and a lot of what we talked about so far, it, it really comes down to one, like education, knowing all the things that you talk about in your book, right? Because if we don't know them, then it's really hard to identify them. So education, you know, discipline, and ultimately tying these things, uh, these, these reward systems in a way that's more positive. And, you know, after writing my book and as a result of my health coaching sessions, I've done a lot of research on fasting, for example. And so I know a lot of the vast benefits because I've done a lot of research on it, but you know, it may not be that pleasurable in the moments, but in my mind, I really tie that closely to, you know, the idea of longevity, being disease-free, energetic, being able to pass on these healthy epigenetic signatures to my kids and grandchildren one day. So tying that together for me has been really important. Good, good, great. Um, if you don't mind, I just want to offer a, a quick um, opinion about fasting. So there's some evidence that you may have different evidence, but that you train your body to fear famine because we evolved in a feast or famine world. And there's some evidence that your body holds on to fat because it's anticipating the next famine. So just mentioning. Interesting. That. Yeah. I actually hadn't gone down the um, you know, psychological aspect as much as, you know, helping with some metabolic markers, for example, um, like insulin resistance or blood sugar and, and things like that, which I've found to be super helpful. So it's definitely not for everyone. And it's not a practice that I do every day or every week, but it's something, you know, it's a tool to be used um, to get people from point A to point B in their, in their health goals. So, also um, intermittent fasting, that may be, I don't know if that's something you're thinking about, but that's, I think that's valuable. And an interesting way of looking at that, I learned sort of from my mother inadvertently. So my mother grew up in a world of real hunger. So when she was hungry, she had a fear association. Like what if I don't get enough food because I'm hungry? Um, and people who grew up with enough food that wouldn't occur to them, like what if I actually can't get food? So because hunger gave her fear, then how do you relieve fear? You act. So then she would eat in advance to relieve that hunger, to relieve that fear. So eating in advance of your hunger then of course has bad consequences. Now, um, interestingly, my husband, um, he grew up like with um, like pressure from his mother to eat. So if he turned down food, then he might make his mother mad. So that was the whole fear thing about making his mother mad. So it's very valuable for a person to identify the, um, the experiences that created their responses to food. And then when you have hunger, what is that association that it has for you? Um, like for other people, um, if you're lonely, loneliness is a mammalian fear of social isolation, which is a real fear. And then if you eat a brownie and it distracts you from the thought of isolation, then your mammal brain thinks, oh, that worked. Um, so so um, intermittent fasting is a way to train you to manage your response to hunger because it helps you separate it from the circuit you already had and build a new circuit. Absolutely. I think it's, it has really powerful you know, psychological uh, implications. And actually, I think that's one of the reasons why it's been used for thousands of years in religions and things like that. And you usually include it with a gratitude practice while you're doing it too. 
So yeah. uh, what I understand from, you know, reaching happiness, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but it seems to be kind of a fallacy in my eyes, reaching it, you know, having happiness, right? So unless we reach enlightenment, humans don't actually seem to be ever fully content. And that's a good thing. It was a survival mechanism. So for modern humans to actually, you know, be happy, quote unquote, long term, uh, we have to be constantly be doing more. Uh, you know, is that is that right? Would you agree with that? Uh, yes and no. I'd add a couple of things. Um, one is to understand the unhappy pathways that you have in your past, because that's mostly what's creating um, the threat signals. And the threat signals are the big motivator, like a caveman was threatened by hunger and predators. And in your early years, whatever turned on your unhappy chemicals, that told you that that was a threat. And so you spend your whole life running away from that particular threat. And then once you notice how you're doing that and reprogram, rewire that, so then, then you free yourself that you don't have to constantly um, escape that threat. And so that's very valuable. And one other thing, I, um, I, I, the simple example I use was um, when I was a kid, I had gotten wired to think that people were saying bad things about me. Me too. And um, uh, when I was not there. And the idea that people could be saying good things about me when I'm not there never occurred to me because my brain immediately went to the bad things over and over and over. And then I could see easily how I learned that. It's not, a, don't have to make a big PTSD thing about it. It's like, I learned it and I can learn something else. And just the idea of like, oh, it's possible that people were saying good things and I screened that out because I was so wired to look for bad things. Wow, that's so freeing, you know? So that's the idea. And um, the other thing I would just say is this, this sort of paradigm of when you say humans reaching enlightenment, I see this as another externalizing thing where people are blaming society. Like society has not reached enlightenment. Therefore, it's not my fault that I'm unhappy. So, so you know, it's, it's an individual thing. Right. No, I kind of meant that more as a joke. So, um, you know, another phenomenon which has also skyrocketed during, uh, you know, social isolation right now is anxiety. And I want to use public speaking as an example, because, you know, as you probably know, that's one of the biggest fears that people, a lot of people have, you know, including myself for a really long time. I couldn't do it without sweating through my shirt, having, you know, heart, my heart rate was through the roof you know, awkward hand placements, all of it, you know. Um, so from your research, how can we work with this ancient psychological system, which tells us something like public speaking is a death sentence when in reality, it's not that bad. So the simple answer to everything is to focus on what you want rather than what you don't want. So when you're doing public speaking, what do you want? But I'm not saying, I want to be the greatest ever because I think that's an example of these like unrealistic, unactionable things that just make you nervous. So what do I want that I can have? And I think, wow, I, when I was young, I never got heard. 
And these people are here willing to listen to me. That's so nice. So I, it's like, I already have what I want. So instead of focusing on something far away that you may mess up on, it's like, isn't this nice? I have somebody's attention for two minutes. Isn't that great? So another thing about public speaking that um, I noticed when I was giving a talk that my eyes would settle on a person who was grimacing. And I can't believe how many times I did this. And then I realized like, Jesus, a whole big room full of people and my eyes settled on the person with a grimace on their face. This is, this is a choice. This is an action. I don't need to do that. So I can just choose to focus somewhere else. So you're, you're always creating that impression in your brain. And the other thing you said um, related to social isolation and, and anxiety. So why are people having anxiety now? Well, I think the biggest reason is because they're used to having other people um, managing them uh, and other distractors and externals pushing them. And without that push, it's hard to get themselves to do things other than worry. And there's so many polls to just focus on nothing but worry. So one of them is the news. So I think the news is a disaster. Don't watch the news because only there to make you worry. And the other is to know that we bond around negatives and everybody else is worried. And if you worry with them, then you're considered a good, supportive, empathetic person. Whereas if you go off and say, well, I'm gonna take a public speaking class and learn to build skills during this time, then they're like, oh, who does she think she is? She's not, you know. <laughs> yeah, that's, those are all really, really great points because, you know, I think, again, it really comes down to those themes that you talked about at the beginning. It's, it's, it's taking ownership for these things. And maybe, you know, there is greener grass if you let go of the herd mentality a little bit. And, uh, you know, that may actually be a good thing. Although, you know, it kind of does hurt in a way to not, you know, feel belonging and fuel that, you know, worry, worry, worry with, with other people, right? Yes, yes. And that's why I explain this thing called a, a virtual herd, which is not like a digital herd, but a virtual herd means that instead of having one herd that I'm with every minute of my life, is that I trust my skill in finding social support as needed. So I know I can have support when I need it, but because I don't need it right this minute, it frees me, as you said, to trot off to greener pasture rather than to just follow the herd. Because when you follow the herd, you're only gonna get grass that has been trampled on and frankly peed on by others. That's a great analogy. I like that a lot. So now I wanna talk a little bit about the other side of the neurochemical spectrum. So you know, in, in your videos, presentations and books, uh, well, your book, you focus on the happy chemicals and are super knowledgeable about them and how they work. So it's my thinking that, you know, in order to understand something like happiness so well, you must also know a little bit about, you know, depression, anxiety, feeling unfulfilled, which is kind of the, been the default mode for a lot of people over the past year. So from a survival standpoint, um, where does something like depression and even, you know, suicidal behaviors fit in? 
Sure. Okay. Um, so many things. So um, first, I want to say that I think a lot of people are using the pandemic to blame for patterns they already have. And in fact, um, our, our patterns are wired in youth. And we're always using whatever's going on in the outside world that year to blame for our old patterns because we're not aware of them. And every person is dealing with the pandemic with the patterns they already have. And, and again, it becomes an excuse. And I can even say that, you know, I was always a workaholic. So for me, it's an excuse to be a workaholic. <laughs> so we're all doing that. So, uh, but how can you get a very um, deeply unhappy pattern? So I have a few books and apart from my happy brain book, I have one called The Science of, po the Science of Positivity, Stop Negative Thought Patterns by Changing Your Brain Chemistry. So it explains why negativity is natural and negativity is our actual default state. And it's so easy to go into negativity. And in fact, positivity is harder to learn and it's a skill we have to build. So everyone can build a skill in small steps and you could start feeling good with the first step, but you only do that if you believe you can. And if you think that negativity is a disease, then not only don't you believe that you can, but you expect somebody else to cure you. So that's why I think the disease model is so unhealthy. Then I have another book called Tame Your Anxiety, Rewiring Your Brain for Happiness. And that's a very step-by-step -step individual approach to in that moment of anxiety, what to do and how to rewire and redirect that energy. So I'm not sure how much of this you'll actually agree with, but um, you know, it seems like we're actually kind of more um, wired to see the negatives just because of how risk averse that we are. So it, is that actually true? Yes, I think so. And that's, I think that's one thing that I sort of agree with that mainstream psychology says, and I also agree, but for so, there's so many reasons. Like if you start going into the reasons why we're negative, there's so many reasons that you could almost appreciate how hard it is to be positive and forgive yourself for being negative. And I have a four minute cartoon animation that explains this. Uh, it's called Tame Your Anxiety. It's on YouTube and um, it's, I, I call it false alarms. Why we turn on our threat chemicals when there's not really a predator about to eat us. Right, right. Now I wanna finish up with um, one big question, um, but I think it's gonna be a super valuable question for the people listening. So what are, if you could, if you had to choose the top three habits or the tips that you would give people, you know, at this time right now to boost their happy hormones, tame their anxiety, uh, when depression, anxiety, and a lack of motivation are running rampant? Okay, well, let's focus on one thing for each chemical because all you have is your next step. And if you take a next step that triggers one of these chemicals, that's the answer for every minute is just to take one more step toward one more chemical because the minute you're stepping toward a happy chemical, it's like a gazelle is stepping toward escaping a lion and toward its next mouthful of food um, rather than focusing on the lion. So that's all we have. 
A gazelle always lives in a world full of lions, but all it has is the next step toward food. And so we will always live in a world full of threats, but as long as we're stepping toward a world, we will always be mortal. We will always know we're gonna die. That's on my list of why we have false alarms all the time. And so all we can do is have that next step toward rewards. So um, let's start with what would be a next step toward oxytocin is to take a small trust step towards someone else, which means don't buy them an expensive dinner. Don't, you know, it's not like giving money to beggars. You know, it's actually building reciprocal trust with a real physical person that you know, and even better if it's a person you hate because relieving bad will in your life is actually gives you a feeling of safety, but don't expect immediate change is just, you take one little step and another little step, and then that person will respond when they're ready. But if you keep taking steps toward different people, then you will harvest all of these seeds at unexpected times. So that, and the, but you will feel a little bit good about it now, but again, do it with, with long-term reciprocal, where you have the opportunity to build long-term reciprocal bonds rather than with strangers. So an, a serotonin step, you have to take pride in your own actions. So do something you're proud of. Um, and you don't have to, I always say, you don't have to rescue orphans from burning buildings. You don't have to be a savior of the world because even if you are a savior of the world, then you'll think you'll be jealous of other people who are saving the world more than you and getting more credit. That's how the mammal brain works. So you actually have to focus on your next step that you're proud of and take it and make it a small realistic step so you can take it now and then take another one tomorrow. And then you'll keep building that serotonin pathway and you'll, that will turn on that sense of pride more easily. And finally, dopamine, again, we talked about having different, <clears throat> excuse me, different goals, but also having variety because <clears throat> variety turns on your um, positivity more easily. And I, I talk about having some positive distractors that are ready for you when you're in a bad mood. Because when you're in a bad mood, it, everything looks bad because cortisol is designed to make everything look bad. So if you have some fun variety ready, like I give a simple example, like I find this movie that I love and then I don't watch it now, but I save it for when I'm in a bad mood because you know I might have to look, look through 20 movies that I don't like to find one I like. And if I do that when I'm in a bad mood, then I'm gonna feel worse. So it's sort of um, uh, managing your ups and downs, accepting them and then managing them. I, uh, so the idea of taking small steps really resonates with me because you know, in, in the context of, of social bonds, for example, I know that if you know, one of my friends or one of my family members is, is feeling bad, it doesn't really take that much to, to lift them up a little bit. I mean, all it is, is like giving them a little bit of attention, listening to them, right? Uh, yes and no. I, I mean, I say yes and no, because when I was a little kid and others may have this experience, my mother was deeply depressed and I tried to cheer her up 
and never succeeded. So if a person is in that life where they're judging themselves by their ability to fix a deeply depressed parent, then I felt like a failure all the time because it never worked. So is to say, you tr when someone is distressed, you take a step toward them, you make an effort, but if that doesn't fix them, don't say, well, I have to invest my whole life in fixing that one person and I have to feel like a failure if I can't fix that one person because that leads to unhealthy enmeshment. So is to have variety and take steps toward different people and then feel proud of your steps instead of judging yourself by their immediate response. Okay, I see what you mean. Yeah, that's a good clarification because, uh, you know, it's not maybe that much about um, expecting a certain response for someone. It's more so the fact that you're taking small steps and, you know, you're tied to that process of, of creating those social bonds. And also experimenting. You could say, I'm gonna, I don't know what's going to work, so I'm going to take this step today, but if that doesn't work, then tomorrow I'll try something else. And that triggers your dopamine excitement of like something's going to work, but I just don't know what. Awesome. So, but I have to say that nothing worked with my mother. When yes. I yeah, no, it's, it's tough dealing, dealing with something like that. And it's something that I've also dealt with. And, uh, you know, with a lot of my friends that I know who've had parents who are, you know, arguing all the time and they try to diffuse the tension and it doesn't work sometimes. And, you know, you feel like you're a total failure for that. Exactly. And I always explain that most famous comedians started because they were pushed into the role of cheering up a depressed parent. And that's why I always hear that even though they, they seem happy and they seem like they're making others laugh, but they're still depressed because it never worked. So they got a career skill, but in order to be happy, they really have to replace that circuit with another circuit that allows them to take in their success. <laughs> you know? Yes, yeah, completely agree with that. So now we're getting into the rapid fire rounds, which is something that I always do with the guests that come on the show. So, um, you know, we talked about this a little bit with the last question, but for you, knowing so much about, you know, happy chemicals, having, having written all the books that you've written, what is the most important for you health promoting habit you personally do every single day? Huh? Um, well, what I, what I always talk about is social comparison. And I always want to um, make sure people are aware of that. And if I notice my brain doing the social comparison thing, which it naturally does, then I'm always conscious of it. And first, instead of denying it and saying, I don't care about that, is saying, this is my internal reality that I'm creating. And I have the power to create a new internal reality by focusing on something I'm proud of instead of measuring myself against some abstraction that I invented about other people. Now, what is the most interesting thing you've learned recently or the most important realization that you've had? Um, so I am, uh, I, I have this, I'm, I'm always focused on my next book. So I'm always saying, oh, what's the next? So I started thinking of writing a book called It's Not My Fault. And um, I, my realization is that 
it's not my fault is like so tempting and everyone in the world is trying to lure you and buy you and buy your loyalty by selling you the it's not my fault message and everybody wants to buy into this well it's not my fault it's the fault of this it's a fault of that and all through human history people have found ways to externalize and to say the devil made me do it in one way or another you know it's my genes it's whatever but it's never my fault and it's so disempowering when you believe that but then if you think everything is your fault then you may have some loops from old pathways because if you admitted anything was your fault you were blamed for everything so it's just understanding those old pathways finding a middle road to say i'm going to take power over my own life it's not blaming myself but i'm it's not your fault is so powerless that i'm not going to go that path now what drives you to get up in the mornings on the days that you least want to on the days that we, um, um, well, I'm always excited to get up in the morning because um, I have, if you live long enough, um, <laughs> so I actually took early retirement and I started every day getting up when I want and doing what I want. And I spent, so the first 50 years of my life doing what I had to do in order to get that luxury. So I'm not telling people, you know, that you should never have to do anything you want, but I made a conscious effort that I'm going to fill my life with stuff that I want. And I realized that part of the reason I had so many things I didn't like was people literally fear free time because like they'd rather have a calendar full of stuff they don't want than to have free time. Because maybe when you have free time, you feel ignored and isolated and unimportant. But I decided that I would have the courage to have like an empty calendar so that like good stuff can come up and I can be free to do it. So I often find that with myself that if I have way too much free time, I feel like I'm wasting time in my head or I'm not doing enough or, you know, things like that, that just pop into, you know, my head. So then you accept things that then you don't want to do because you were afraid of having the free time. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So where can people find out more about you, your work, uh, you on social media? Sure. Um, so my website is innermammalinstitute.org, innermammalinstitute.org. And there's lots and lots of free resources. And um, if you uh, subscribe to my newsletter, you get a, a, a free five-day happy chemical jumpstart. Awesome. I'll have the links to that in the show notes. And uh, again, thank you for coming on the podcast. Sure. Thank you. It was fabulous. I, I really appreciate how well you understood and absorbed all of my information. No, <laughs> it's, it's, it was awesome information. Thank you. Thank you. Now, if you enjoyed this episode and you've enjoyed some of my other episodes, it would be very, very helpful to me if you could share this with your loved ones, share this with your family and friends, and give this a review on Apple Podcasts and iTunes. That would be very, very helpful. 
Navigating the world of health and wellness is anything but straightforward. So if you're a little bit confused as to, you know, what things are harmful, is this food good? Is this food bad? Well, spoiler alert, it's not that simple. However, I and many others have done the heavy lifting. So I put together a book called Return to Human, how modern medicine, the media, and the mundane have destroyed our immune systems and how to move back towards optimal health. The full version is available on Amazon. Now it's around 70 or 80 pages. And so it's really a simple guidebook that you can use and an introduction to all of the major aspects of health, which is why I think it's so helpful for people who are kind of confused and lost. Here's what I cover. I cover the top six aspects of health, which if compounded, if combined together, and all of these things are done properly, then you can have amazing effect on your overall health. Because, you know, unlike what many health gurus claim, one thing will not make a healthy person. Multiple things will give you a 1%, a 2%, even a 10% if you're lucky, increase in your overall quality of life. Now that's what I set out to do when I wrote this book. So I cover those top six. I tell you very, very simple things that one, damage your immune health and your overall health. Two, how you can do the appropriate thing based on research, right? And it's not a medical recommendation. Of course, I want you to do your own research. You are responsible for you, but it's a great starting point if you're a little bit confused. Now, I understand that right now you may not want to dish out a few dollars, even though it is $3 right now on Amazon. That's okay. Because mindset is inextricably tied to your immune health, so your emotional state, your mindset, all of that directly affects how your immune system functions in response to a virus or bacterial infection and so forth. So I made that chapter 100% free for you to download. It gives you some very simple tools that you can use to reduce stress, to calm the nervous system, all in a way that's free or very, very affordable. Now, if you want that, you can click the link in the description, which says free download to chapter two, or simply head over to livedamwell.com. I hope you check it out. I hope it helps, and I'll see you in the next episode.